Hello, and welcome to Fatal Fems, a podcast surrounding the women of mystery. Each episode will look at a movie or TV show written, directed, or made famous by a female-identifying artist. We're your hosts, Laura Celeste and Lacey Cannon-Gonzalez. Stay tuned. In this episode, we look at the 1950 movie The File on Thelma Jordan, directed by Robert Siodmak, written by Ketty Frings, based on a story by Marty Holland, starring Barbara Stanwyck and Wendell Corey. To get us started, here's the synopsis. Assistant District Attorney Cleve Marshall falls for the mysterious Thelma Jordan when she seeks help solving robberies of her aunt's estate. Trigger warnings for this episode are murder, cheating, violence, and some disturbing images. We want to caution you that this episode is full of spoilers. We talk in depth about the plot, so if you care about that, go and watch the movie and come back. We'll be waiting. So the year is 1950 when this movie came out, and we just wanted to give y'all a little bit about what was happening in the world at that time, because it really helps to see how the movie fit in with the culture and the current climate. So the average cost of a new house in 1950 was $8,450. The first peanut comic strip appeared in newspapers. China Invades Tibet, Stevie Wonder, Natalie Cole, and John Candy are born. Guys and Dolls opens on Broadway. The first organ transplant takes place, and the Korean War begins. Okay, so the file on Thelma Jordan. When did you first become aware of this film? This was one of my discoveries at Noir City this year. I'd seen a lot of Barbara Stanwyck movies before, because of course she's the queen of noir, but I'd never seen this one, and in my research on this, it's one that I guess a lot of people haven't seen. But they showed it the first day, and it was the second of the double feature, and I just really loved it, and of course loved the fact that both the original story and the screenplay were written by women, so it immediately was like, aha, this is one we're going to cover. What made this film, besides it being written by a woman and the original story being written by a woman, what kind of attracted you to it? Because this was Laura's choice. She brought this to me. So I became aware of this film because of Laura. So my story, my origin story is really short. So I'm just curious, what attracted you to this story? Well, I really loved the fact that she was bad. Again, we give our spoiler warnings. You're going to find all this out, but... You've been warned. Yeah. She is bad. She killed her aunt. She got away with it in the end, but also... She was also trying to steal from her aunt when she killed her. Right. But also she didn't. And she was somebody who seemed a product of her circumstances, a little bit like Barbara Stanwyck's own story. We don't know a lot about her backstory, like how Thelma Jordan was raised or anything, but she talked about she was tired of always being broke and always struggling. And that would have been something that would have been probably a leftover symptom of the war, even going farther back, the Great Depression. So there was a lot of, of want going on. And also, it sounds like her and her husband, or not husband, Tony, probably weren't great money managers. So if they did ever have any money, it probably went pretty fast. But I just, I liked how there was more to her than just being, you know, like a femme fatale, that she had depth and all of this grew from this feeling of not having enough that scarcity mindset yes yeah well I like what you said because yeah she did do bad things but where did it come from 
And I think this is, again, why femme fatales to me are so intriguing because very rarely are femme fatales just straight out up and up evil or bad or a criminal. There's always so much more to the story, and I appreciate the complexity of noir, and I appreciate it even more so given that the time frame, that wasn't something that was happening a lot. But you saw a lot of trends with film noir in the 50s and the 40s really hold up to today and would hold up with a modern audience. Well, and as we've said before, one of the great things about film noir is the fact that women were given more complex characters and roles that they wouldn't get in other types of film. Ownership over their identities. And also, it was one of the first um, film styles or film genres, one of the first film genres to have women in director roles, in writer roles. Because we have, like, the great Ida Lupino. I mean, would that start have happened in any other genre? I mean, there were women who directed silent movies and stuff. There's two really fantastic books that I will recommend to you guys. Uh, Backwards and in Heels, The Past, Present, and Future of Women Working in Film, and The Female Gaze, Essential Movies Made by Women. And both of these books are by Alicia Malone, who works for Turner Classic Movies. And um, I'm currently reading The Female Gaze, and it's a really great book because you can just pick it up and like read a chunk about one particular director and then put it down and come back to it after a while. But I definitely would check those out. There's also another book that I'm just seeing that, actually two books that I want to get now, Renegade Women in Film and TV and Pioneers First Women Filmmakers. Adding those to my reading list. Ooh. You heard it here first, folks. Grab those for your holiday presents for the fatal femme in your life. But enough about all of this, even as fascinating as it is. And let's dive into the file on Thelma Jordan. So our first big important event is the thing that actually starts the whole movie. And that is we are introduced to Cleve. He is an assistant district attorney. It is his anniversary He comes into his office and his wife is on the phone with one of his co-workers or a friend of his. It's a colleague of some sort, Scott. Yes. Miles Scott. So yeah, this is a work colleague by the name of Miles Scott. And he is on the phone with Cleve's wife. What is Barbara? It's Laura. I have it right here. Pamela. It's Pamela. She seems like a Pamela. She is a Pamela. That seems like a very modern name for that time period. But yeah, so Miles Scott is on the phone with Pamela listening kind of her lament her fifth wedding anniversary, which has gone very badly, seeing as her husband is drunk in his office with his friend, listening to him talk to his wife. Yeah. We find out that the reason he's there and not home at the party is because he doesn't particularly like his father-in-law. And making matters worse, he doesn't like his father-in-law. He doesn't like how his father-in-law kind of butts in to his family life. Because you have to remember, at that time, and I mean, honestly, for a long time, men considered their wife, like, their property. So it's like... A woman goes from her father's house to her husband's house. So property is, the property title is transferred. So he doesn't like that his 
father-in-law kind of isn't following that protocol and he's still very much involved in his daughter's life and his wife likes to involve her parents in their family milestones like their wedding anniversary which Cleve is not a fan of but the straw that broke the camel's back was the fact that there was this whatnot that she wanted which we ever we never know what the what whatnot is I think we find out um when he comes home later that night I think it's like a shelving unit thing because he sets his bottle of booze on it and it's got a bow on it and he almost tips it over and he goes shh at it. I miss that. I have watched this movie three times now and I miss that. So I think that's, I mean, I always assumed a whatnot was like a little figurine or something, but. I guess it's something you can put whatnots on as well. Yeah, because he was saying it, it goes in the corner and I blah, blah, blah. And you um, put whatnot on it. Yeah. So he, she told both Cleve and her father that she wanted this thing. And when Cleve went to buy it the day of his anniversary. Which I'm like, that's just poor planning. Um, his father-in-law had already bought it. So that was the reason for his whole tantrum, why he wouldn't go home and have his anniversary dinner with his wife and her family. And he wouldn't even talk to his wife. She didn't even know where he was at. All because his father-in-law bought something before he could. Now, if I haven't seen an example of some toxic masculinity, this is it. Because he literally goes to pieces because he doesn't get his way. His father-in-law also helped him get his job, so he feels very upset about that, I guess, because he didn't get it on his own. Yeah, and just the whole conversation between Scott and Pamela and Cleve kind of interjecting here and there, you really get the sense of this man, and he is really painted that he has been emasculated down to his core, and he is just feeling very defeated. Because he doesn't feel like he's he has control over anything or that he's earned anything. And he talks about how important it is for him to have control over things or to have a say-so in things. I can't remember exactly how he said it, but he definitely voices that a couple times. I think all of this is setting up the pieces perfectly for Barbara Stanwyck's Thelma Jordan to enter. Because you have this man that feels emasculated and defeated. And in walks this very beautiful woman in this glamorous dress. Also, we'll talk about costumes, but in a very different style of dress that we're used to seeing. She's walking in. She looks extremely glamorous. Very beautiful woman. It's striking presence. Like, that is something about Barbara Stanwyck that you cannot deny, is this woman has complete presence when she enters the screen. And your eyes can't look away. And not only is she a beautiful woman coming in for whatever reason, she also goes out of her way to build him up a little bit. Talk about, well, if a man can't have a drink at the end of a hard day, ugh. And just kind of feeding into that little boy that wants to be encouraged and built up. And she's definitely doing that. But she doesn't know who she's meeting. She has an appointment with Scott. Miles Scott, yes. And so she just assumes, and so she just assumes that that's who is there. Um, and because he, Cleve is in Miles Scott's office, kind of drinking himself into oblivion. Yes. It's late. It's night. She says, I'm sorry that I'm so late. I didn't know if you'd wait for me. So clearly everybody should be home at this point. Mm-hmm. But yet here she is in her nice dress coming to meet this dude to talk about these attempted burglaries that's been happening at her aunt's house. 
She lives with her aunt. She does things for her. She also talks about how her aunt veers character in the community, and she is eccentric and doesn't like men. I don't know if that's because she thinks they're going to haul her off to an insane asylum or something, or some kind of sanatorium, or if she's just like, oh, I don't like matching clothes. Who doesn't like a man in uniform? Well, Aunt Vera. Well, yeah. So Cleve is very drunk, and I just want to mention real quick, and we'll see a lot of examples of this, he is really good at comedy. He is so funny. This movie, tonally, sometimes doesn't know what it is, I think. Because a lot, of, even the music, I was listening to the music today, the score, it sounds like a comedy. It's like that that kind of upbeat. And he's like entering the house, this is later on, but when he's coming in the house drunk and he like staggers into bed, it almost plays like a comedy scene. Yeah, and there's a lot of funny a lot of funny parts in it, but he's trying to open a file folder from the end that's closed with a brad that you can't open. And he's just so dedicated to it. It's hilarious. I don't know if Wendell Corey did comedy, but he should have because he had some natural comedy. So she's trying to explain about what's going on with her aunt, and he's drunk. He's and, focusing on that file. Yeah, and he is... He lets her go on for a long time before he finally tells her he's not Miles Scott. Right. And he tells her that he wants to go find a dame and she just says, okay, good luck with that. I'm out of here. And he's like, wait, no, I'm a public servant. Let me help you. And she gets a ticket and he says that he'll take care of the ticket for her. Yeah, she goes from being very much... See you later, buddy. Yeah, yeah, leave me alone. But as soon as he offers to take care of the ticket, she's like, oh, really? That'd be swell. Thanks. She's like, I guess I should have a drink with you because this whole time he's been trying to get her to be the dame he has a drink with. Because Miles Scott made a very interesting comment. And at first I thought he meant, because he says, go out and find a dame and tell her about your problems. They say that seems to help. I thought he meant, like, go out and cheat on your wife. But I think he literally meant, go out and find some lady to talk to at a bar. Yeah, I think that's just what to, like, he meant. Build you up and make you feel better. Just go talk to some random lady and get drunk. Yeah. That was that was the nineteen fifties version of therapy, I guess. Yeah. You heard it here first. If you have a problem, just find go out and find a random lady to talk to. No, a dame. A dame. You gotta find a dame. I guess I need to do a little bit more research because I don't know if a dame was like a loose woman or a, you know, a woman that hung out in a bar, so she was the scourge of society, but they were like, he said, I think, if you'll pardon the expression, or... I think, I think Dame was like a young, attractive, single woman. Okay. But like, probably very attractive, probably like a sexy, lady. like a sexy lady you meet at a bar. The one good thing that did happen is she tells him you're in no condition to drive. Yes, she does make him be the passenger, not before he climbs right over her. And that was another example of a comedic scene. Because here you have this very statuesque and put together Barbara Stanwyck while when climbing across her like a jungle gem. Yeah, and he's all rumpled and... Um, you can tell that his clothes are, you know, fairly nice. Maybe not the top of the line, but yeah, he just is all disheveled and she just is gorgeous and put together and looks like she got dressed up just to go there. Well, because she probably did. Well, no, she did, but... Um, I don't know if we're going to be able to circle back and talk about this after the end, but I mean, we've established 
from our previous conversation that Thelma Jordan isn't completely innocent in all of this. And she did go there for a reason. Watching it over again, you can just kind of see the wheels turning because once she realizes she's not with Miles Scott, her demeanor changes just for a little bit. But then once she kind of recalculates, she gets kind of her groove back and she has a meeting out of the palm of her hand. And I also wondered that ticket that she got, did she actually get that ticket or what is it put there? Because he even makes mention that he did not get a ticket and the car behind her didn't get Oh, so the ticket might have been part of the plan too. Just just to kind of put her in that damsel in distress kind of thing because at the time I guess that was the hotel bliss. Yeah. I, I wonder if it was I wonder if it was just another kind of method employed to kind of sink her claws in a little deeper. Never underestimate women. Never underestimate Barbara Stanwyck. I will never, because at this point when I was watching the movie for the first time, she seemed so innocent like she wasn't going to do anything. And I never trusted her once throughout this whole thing because I knew. I knew. Well, they do go out and he gets really, really drunk. She doesn't know it though because every time she walks away to put money in the jukebox, the waiter tells her this. He's pouring alcohol into his soda or whatever he's drinking. coffee because that's what she oh, says into his coffee all we've been drinking is coffee and he says that's what you think and he goes he's been putting this in when you're not looking yeah so he is like i don't even know how he's not blacked out but he is hitting on her big time if we didn't say before we're saying it now he is you know professing his love for her just completely enamored with this woman yeah and so she makes him get in the car and he, she drives him back to his car, um, which presumably he's going to drive. And I think he does drive, but not before planning a big old wet one on her. But honestly, kisses in these movies looked more like assaults. They were so rough, rough. Yeah, they just like smacked. It was literally just pressing your faces together as hard as you could. It looked awful. Yeah. I don't know why anyone would ever want to kiss anybody having watched those movies. It's so romantic. Because it literally looks like they're just like, and then they just roll their faces around a little bit. It was like when you were little and um, you were talking to that one little boy. I can't remember his name, but his sister ran up and like pushed Charles' <gasps> heads together yeah, his and name made was you kiss. Will. His name was Will. Her name was Rebecca. But she just kind of slammed y'all together. She slammed our heads together and it hurt it's really bad. Kind of like that. No, yeah, that's what a 1940s kiss, that's what a, yeah, that's what a classic movie kiss looks like. So this is another part that we get a lot of really great comedy when, yes, he does drive his car home, which I don't know how, but he kind of pulls up awkwardly in the yard and he's trying to shush his car because it's making too much noise <laughs> yeah. and he tries to kick a ball and he almost Charlie Browns it and falls on, he doesn't fall on his back, but he almost does. Just, you know, barely standing on two feet by the skin of his teeth. Yeah, and that's, again, when he walks in and he puts the bottle up on the whatnot and he's shushing it and he's just, like, throwing his clothes everywhere as he's undressing. And and so he gets into the bedroom and they have separate beds at that time. So they had, like, little separate twin beds. And he, like, flops down into bed thinking he's being all quiet, I guess. And, of course, the wife's awake and she's like, Cleve, where were you on the night of May 25th? Which is that night. And he says something and then passes out. Yeah. So... Nothing really gets resolved. Yeah. Happy anniversary. Yep. And the maitre d' at the restaurant said, told him, 
I don't want to have his head in the morning. And he goes, you can try it on now if you'd like. <laughs> or says something like that. He was in bad shape. So let's take a little break here. And I just wanted to talk about the screenwriter and the woman who created the original story. This was based on an unpublished story by Marty Holland. She was an American screenwriter and author of pulp novels. Uh, What's a pulp novel? Would that be like a crime novel or like something like really like seedy? Yeah. Like like kind of like erotic? I don't know that it would have been erotic, but it would have been... Was it fanfic? Yes, it was definitely fan fiction. It was like lower quality writing. Yeah, a lot of them would have been more like, you know dime or nickel novels and and when i say low quality not saying the pieces were of bad or low quality themselves but just lower production costs maybe maybe that's a better term american pulp fiction first appeared on cheap wood pulp paper oh so it was low production cost um pulp magazines were inexpensive fiction magazines that were published from 1896 to the late 50s Oh, yeah, cool. and the term pulp derives from the, the cheap wood pulp paper. Oh, I guess that's where Pulp Fiction got its name. So they could have been, they could have been westerns, they could have been crime, they could have been whatever. It was just more short stories to fit into a magazine. Yeah, I guess so. Cool. Um, and so she was a typist in Hollywood. Wrote this is still Marty Holland. Yes, wrote several short stories and then transitioned into writing novels and screenplays, and she saw two of her works adapted for the screen. Uh, her first novel, Fallen Angel, was adapted into a film of the same name directed by Otto Preminger. And was that written by Katy Frings as well, the screenplay? I think it might have been. That sounds like one of her works. I looked her up, and I think that was the title that she did. This movie was banned in Ireland because of indecency and obscenities. Oh my gosh, scandalous. And then her second published novel, The Glass Heart, was optioned by RKO, and James M. Kane was going to do the screenplay, but it was never completed. Mm. And then The File on Thelma Jordan was adapted from an unpublished story, so she had two, thing, two movies made off of her stories. Wow. And so Kitty Frings, well, she was a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, yep. nominated for two Tony Awards. She had a novel, Hold Back the Dawn, adapted for the screen. She adapted a lot of novels into film or theater. She was also known to work 10 to 12 hours a day on a script. Wow. Yeah. She was named Woman of the Year by the Los Angeles Times in 1958. She was a pretty cool woman. She um, adapted a lot of novels into screenplays and theater um, scripts. And she also was married. She had like two or three kids. So she not only managed to raise a family, but she also had a very successful and thriving career. Yeah, both on both in the theater world and the film world. I feel like didn't she wasn't there one that she wrote the script for theater? The theater production, and then she wrote the screenplay? Yes. I thought so. I don't have down which one that is, That though. might have been the Pulitzer Prize winner. And she also wrote novels, too. Yes, So, she did. very accomplished. Both of these women. Very prolific writer, yes. I don't know much about Marty Holland, but I did do some research on Ketty Frings, and I thought she was quite incredible, and I was surprised I had never heard of her before. There wasn't much information on Marty Holland. That's most of like what was in her Wikipedia page and everything. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, I was very interested in both of these women, and I'd never heard of them until I saw the file on Thelma Jordan. So that just goes to show you, folks, always look up the screenwriter. Look up what it's based on. You might find some really cool hidden gems buried within the people that create and bring these stories to life. Well, I've gone down a lot of rabbit holes before going, oh, I really like this movie. Uh, who wrote it? Who directed it? Oh, man, look at all this other stuff they've done. Let me go track down everything else and found some really amazing things that way. That you probably wouldn't have found otherwise, or it would have been a lot longer before you did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so very cool. So jumping back into the movie, we are in full swing of this affair right now. Well, yeah, but first, before that happens, they see each other at the courthouse or the judicial building. We're not quite sure what it is, but it's some kind of building where law things happen. And she's outside, and he's walking up, and she's basically like, oh, I see you're married. See you later. And he's like, yeah, you have a good life, and they part ways. And there's an amazing dog in her car. He has a very, very shaggy, sheepy dog. So cute. Yeah, he makes a comment about, I see you've brought protection. And he is going to go spend the summer, well, weekends of the summer, up at the beach. His yeah. wife and children are going to go up there. It's a yearly tradition, but she wants to go up earlier so they get a, an extra weekend, and he does not want to do that. Which, it's always really funny how him and Thelma kind of, their meetings happen. Because the first one happened right after he talked, or right after the whole anniversary debacle happened. And then he's right off the tails of feeling pretty bummed out about having to go and drive back and forth from the beach back to the city after talking to his wife and her basically going like, I'm not really concerned about what you want. This is about what the kids want and what I want. So just do what I say, which I'm fully on board with because she's like, we have to think of the kids too. And he's not thinking about anybody but himself. So it's right on the tails of all that happening that he finds a message that someone took while his secretary was out and he calls the number and it's Thelma. This is also when we get to see Aunt Vera, who is played by this amazing actor. She has a list of credits like a mile long. Um, she's a German-born actor, just worked constantly. And a lot of them were uncredited. Uncredited roles. I would say the majority of her roles were uncredited. But I really love her. She stands out. She, she's on screen for such a short amount of time, but yet she's so memorable. Her name is Gertrude Hoffman, and she also raised like four or five kids in addition to being an actor. She was actually an actor later in life because she was born in like 18, 1871, and she died in 1968. So she basically had lived a lifetime raised kids before she even started in film. Yeah, and I think she worked almost up until the point that she died. Yeah, she worked very close. I think she was... How old was she? She was 96 when she died. I just wanted to take a minute and just recognize her. Yeah, her last credit was about 10 years before she passed away. But that would have meant that she was 86 and still working. And that I, that is incredible, especially for that time period. But Aunt Vera is really funny because Thelma's reading her a book about fruit baskets. or She's reading her a magazine article about some kind of fruit baskets. And she gets the call and the butler comes, comes and gets her. And she's like, excuse me, Aunt Vera. And he brings tea, and she's like, where's the rest of it? Doctor or no doctor, I want my brandy. Yeah, she's she's quite a character. Yes, I, I don't think she's as um, 
feeble as Thelma lets on. Thelma, yeah, she goes into the house to take the phone call. It's Cleve. It's Cleve, and the music immediately changes. It's, it's this... so romantic. I'm like, this is, these are people cheating. Yeah. It's... Why are we romanticizing this? It's this soft, and her it's voice like, immediately oh. goes to, hi, hi Cleve. But yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And then she's like, I'll wait outside for you in 20. So he's going to like pick her up. I guess they're going to go like, I don't know what they're going to do. They're going to talk, Lacey. Okay. I'm going to pretend they're talking. I don't know. He's supposed to be 35 in this film, too. You realize that, right? Yeah. He he's looks a hard 35. Hard 35. I'm like, if that's 35, yeesh, I do not have anything to look forward to because that's happening in four years for me. And you look great for 35. You still look like you're in high school. Thank you. I don't know what he did. Well, he was an alcoholic. That's I'm not trying to make light of that, but that might have been why he looked older. Yeah. Also, they didn't have as many skincare creams as we do now. Also, I think life was a little bit harder. Yeah, it definitely was. So Maybe not for him, but other people. I don't know what his excuse was. People just, but people wanted to look older back then. It wasn't young or it wasn't older people trying to look young it was younger people trying to seem older yeah back then parents were role models kids wanted to be their parents not parents wanting to be their kids yeah so very interesting kind of change that our society went through but yeah so they they're gonna they meet up they rendezvous and the torrid love affair begins oh i remember what i was going to say now i don't know i don't get the feeling that cleve would go all the way with the affair do you? Oh, I think they did. You think they did? Okay. Oh, what else were they doing? These are grown-ass people. This isn't like high schoolers. No, I know that, but I just, I don't know. I just get the feeling from him that he just, like, took her out dancing and stuff. I mean, that's very possible. It's very possible that there was just some, well, actually, you know what? You're right. He did just take her out to dinner that night because then at the end of the night, he goes, you realize you haven't kissed me all night? And she goes, that's not true or something. And then she plants a big wet one on him. Yeah. So he finds out where she walks at night. And this is where he picks her up for their date. But they still have to be careful because one time when they're out, his secretary walks into the restaurant and That's they got to the leave. Time. Yeah. Because they're going to go into the bar and have another drink. But then she's there with a couple of their office buddies. And they're like, no, I guess we're not going to do that. And she tells him about her past, that she was a hostess at a club yeah i, th I think something it she w it wasn't anything nefarious i think she even goes as far as to point that out but she was very popular right and i love the filming of this because as she's talking to him like half her face is in shadow and half of it is in light it's like she's telling some truths but keeping some things hidden well it's like there's two sides to her and maybe we only know one and it flip-flops too like he'll be in shadow and she'll be in light and then she'll be in shadow and he'll be in light because he's in the dark so it's like things are just keeping hidden yes Ooh, i love that that's good she tells him that she's married yeah she tells him that she's married and his reaction there's no other way to, way to put it it made me so mad because i'm like dude you're married why are you mad that she's married because he's like his whole face just drops and his brow furrows. I don't remember quite what he said, but it was something like, oh, well, huh. I don't remember what he said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, huh. I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was definitely judgmental. And I'm like, you are in no place to be judging 
anybody. You have professed your love for a woman you are not married to while your wife and your kids are at the beach. Scum. So I have a question for you. Yeah. Because we find out that her husband's name is Tony Laredo, Mm -hmm. which I think is just a fantastic name. It immediately, like, gives you some kind of an impression. It's such a noir name. Like, that's like your... Like your bad guy noir name. What would be, what would your like film noir name be? Well, that was the question that I had for you. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. Great minds think think alike. alike. Well, I mean, I could tell you mine because I've thought about it a little bit. Okay. But it's kind of funny because then I was thinking about, we went to that 30, we went to 30 Rock Trivia last night and there was a guy there as one of their aliases, which was Victor Nightingale. But that's almost what I said. I was like, Veronica Nightingale. Oh, that's good. But that would be it. It'd be like, Veronica Nightingale. I think mine would be Charlene Burgundy. Charlene LaRue. Or Charlene LaRue. Remember, like, whoever. That was another 30 Rock. Oh, yeah. The the private investigator that tried to, like, seduce Jack. But it was Steve Buscemi (laughs) in a blonde wig. Oh, yeah. Or when he goes undercover in the school and he's like, hello, Hello, fellow fellow kids. kids. (laughs) That is the funniest meme. It's like it was like um, that's oh, what was his name? There was Javert going to the barricade in Les Mis. Like, hello, fellow kids, because he's trying to convince them he's a soldier. (laughs) Like, how do you do, fellow kids? Oh, my gosh. No, but what was your name? So Charlene what? Charlene Burgundy. Charlene Burgundy and Veronica Nightingale are your new host for Fatal Film. A podcast surrounding the women of mystery. Mystery. Send us what your film noir names would be. Oh, yeah. We're definitely going to post something on Instagram and Twitter. And please comment what your film noir name would be. Yeah. I really want to know. We've got to know. I love it. No, because I think that tells you a lot about a person. Because ours are so different. But I think they speak to us as people. Like, I already know what they look like. Yeah. Like, I'm a lounge singer with, like, a sordid past. And you're definitely, like, a jilted lover. Yeah. Like, you were like the good girl. You did everything right. You did everything you were supposed to do. But your husband ran out on you and said you had to shoot him. You had to. Yeah. So something like that. And then you started robbing banks. I like it. Because you like the thrill. We need to write this. And you needed the cash. I do need cash. Oh, that's why you rob banks. Yeah. Okay, so back. Back to Thelma Jordan. Oh, yeah. That's why we're here. So, yeah. So... They're kind of in the midst of this torrid love affair and they're sharing things and secrets are being revealed somewhat. And she's all upset because they have to hide out like a couple of kids. Oh, yeah. She gets real peeved about that. And they're up on this like lover's lookout area. Here comes another car. And in it is a private detective who's been following Cleve. Mm -hmm. I think daddy. Pamela's daddy. That's what we find out later was, yeah, that her dad... But I don't think Pamela was upset about it. Oh, no. I don't think she was at all. She was totally in the loop with it. But like we've talked about Pamela before, she doesn't really seem to be concerned if Cleve's running around. Because she gets inklings pretty early on. And that never seems to really be a problem for her. Is it? But what, more what's the problem is, are you still going to fulfill your like role so that we look good? Yeah. So I think Pamela probably doesn't have a good idea of what marriage is. She probably just knows it needs to look good. Oh, and there's a really beautiful shot when they're up there of the city below Mm -hmm. them kind of sparkling, but then the the trees and the nature and... The trees and the nature. Yeah. Are they in L.A.? I don't 
I don't think they ever say what city they're in. I just assumed it was L.A. Yeah, they. I don't remember them ever saying. They're getting tired, more tired and tired of having to hide out and sneak around like a couple of kids. So they make plans to go away for the weekend. He's going to make up some kind of business trip he has to go on. She's going to leave a note for her aunt, and they are just going to like take off and just spend the weekend together. Oh, yeah, so after... Thelma supposedly had taken off because they they have this really cool shot of a close-up of the note and what it says. I love that in classic movies when they do that with notes and stuff and they leave you time to read that. I don't know why. That's just one of those weird little things. I need to make a note of that. I really like that when they zoom in on a page and let you read it. But um, yeah, so it's a very windy kind of ominous stormy night and Aunt Vera hears a noise and she's getting up, and she's seemingly alone in the house, and she's calling for Thelma, but Thelma, Thelma's nowhere to be found because she's gone. And this scene in particular, they have some of the coolest shots because Aunt Vera is quite an elderly lady, but she has such an incredible face. And the way they light it and shoot it, it just, it's, it's moving art. It's really beautiful. It just captures every line and stray hair and like the glint in her eyes. It's really, it really captures kind of the, that suspenseful feeling they were going for. It also gives you a very lonely feeling. Like it feels like she is alone like and utterly on alone. her own in this big house. Yeah, because there's a shot of her going down the staircase and it's this little tiny frail woman descending this massive staircase and it does it feels very big and isolated so she gets a gun out of a drawer in a table in the hallway yes aunt vera is packing heat walks into a room and we hear the gunshot and see the flash and then intercutting with this is cleave calling to see if thelma is coming to pick him up so he's talking to the butler sydney and oh yeah because they had the phone they have the phones disconnected in the house at night and it's it's like redirected to the servants quarters right so the aunt isn't disturbed so he hears a honk outside assumes it's Thelma and just hangs up well he looks outside it's not her goes back calls the house again this time Thelma picks up the phone yeah I'm not sure where she's at but she's able to pick up the phone and she's like so she hadn't left the house and she's like, Cleve, Cleve, something's happened to get here at once. And Sydney hears all this. Yes, the butler. Or I don't know. Was he the butler? I would think that that would be his title. But yeah. he's some kind of caretaker butler thing. I think he's a butler. Yeah. And he's so, a butler now. Yeah. Cleve runs over and she meets him outside. He says, what is it? Is it Tony? And she's like, oh, you thought of him first too. And Cleve doesn't know what's happened at this point. Yeah, he is so confused. And then finally she's like, Aunt Vera's dead. And we find out she rubbed all her fingerprints off of the window and the Why did she do that? She was like worried that someone was going to suspect her. So she like erased herself, but erased all the evidence in the process. Like and like scrubbed the room clean. Yeah. Which is even more suspicious. And so he takes her inside. This is where his knowledge of a DA comes in because he's like, no, 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 we need we need there to be fingerprints. It needs to look like this is normal. So when they come in, you will expect them to find your fingerprints. And they're going to pretend that she was asleep in bed, that she didn't know Aunt Vera was dead. Well, all this falls apart because 
Sydney gets another phone call and then comes up, comes to the house. Yeah, and all this time, this is all happening around Aunt Vera's safe. So Sydney comes up to check on Vera because of this phone call. So they have to very, very quickly just like put her fingerprints on some, like the window seal on the safe right around um, Aunt Vera, turn Aunt Vera over like, like she had checked the body when she came down and discovered her. Her suitcase is left downstairs, so Cleve's like, get that, take that upstairs, go find the note, destroy the note. And they're just moving at warp speed. And he's just barking directions at her, and she's acting very frantic. And he doesn't have time to get out of the house. Yeah, it's all just kind of a mess. Yeah, not planned at all. We find out that her emeralds were stolen that she had emeralds worth two hundred thousand dollars in the safe and they're gone which in today's money that would be a lot more yeah so he sneaks out of the house drives up surprises his wife says he wasn't feeling well so he didn't go on the business trip that he was going to go on that weekend Mm -hmm. well to his surprise his wife invited the in-laws to stay with her for the weekend because she didn't know that he was going to be there so and she uses that as the excuse she's like well you weren't supposed to be here so I, I wanted them to come up and just about then he gets a call saying hey there's been a murder we need you down here right away so he has an excuse to leave just as daddy and mommy are pulling up so he doesn't even have to say hello right and he has this really super romantic loving line that he says to her because she asks him if he's having an affair or if there's someone else she asks if he loves her the other woman and he does he doesn't answer that question he just says i'm married to you the children and the years which it's like ah honey you shouldn't have yeah it's like wow it's it, it goes to show you how important the facade was at this time i mean it always has been but i think even more so then it was it had to be this leave it to beaver kind of existence and as long as it looked that way everyone was happy it didn't matter if everyone was miserable and he also calls her a coward because she says something along the lines of well daddy thinks that you're cheating or he knows that something's going on and he says oh you can't even say it you have to put it off as daddy says he's a real prick i'm sorry yeah no he is no i'm not sorry he's a prick because he has put this woman through the ringer thankfully i don't think she actually loves him i think it's just more about again the look of it appearances still he has done nothing right in this situation yet he has he takes every opportunity to turn it around on her yeah and she seems very young yeah because she even makes she even says something that sounds young she's like i'm trying to be very grown up or something about this cleave and i thought my goodness what is grown up about sitting by and letting your husband have an affair very different ideals Yeah, that would not be a marriage I would stick around for. No, not at all. But again, I don't think it was necessarily the marriage that she was worried about. I think it was just the appearance of the marriage. But anywho, so he ends up back at Aunt Vera's house, not as a lover this time, but as a district attorney that is there to investigate the case. And there are police everywhere. They're swarming around, getting evidence. They already have like a shoe print in the garden or the rose bushes. And Miles Scott is there. And what is Miles Scott's job title? I don't think they ever say exactly what his job title is, but he's 
he's police or investigator. I don't think he's a lawyer. Let me look it up. Because he's the one leading the investigation. Yeah, I can't find what his job title was. But yeah, he was definitely leading the investigation. And he was almost immediately suspicious of Thelma. Yeah, he's decided already from the very beginning that it was her. And I think it's because of that smoking gun of the butler's testimony that he witnessed the phone phone call between Thelma and a soon-to-be-known Mr. X. Right, and Sydney, the butler, even says, that guy that calls up all the time that gives different names, but it's the same guy. Yeah, because in the initial first call when he calls her um, from his office, he gives her gives the butler the name Miles Scott. So when she comes to the phone, she addresses him as that. And then he corrects her and tells her it's Cleve. So this is not unusual he's constantly using different names yeah we also find out that she isn't married to tony and she never was no so i don't remember why she told him that because she was always tired of it being his problems his marriage just i guess him being like you don't understand i have things i have a family this is a terrible term, but she wanted kind of to have a dog in the fight. I guess so. Kind of. Actually, I think it was more part of her plan to make him jealous. I think you're right. I think it was a manipulation technique. Definitely. Because as we'll go on to discover, again, Thelma is not completely innocent here. Miles Scott wants Cleve to interrogate her and basically get her confess- to confess because I guess he's known as a hard ass or he always gets, gets his man. Because they call him the DA's fair-haired boy in the beginning. Do you remember that? Yeah. So I think he definitely has a reputation of getting the job done. So him and Thelma are put into a room and, I mean, you know, they're in cahoots about all of this. And so they're just talking about what's going to happen. And he's basically just preparing her, like, you're going to be arrested, but this is what we need to do. This is what I'm going to do. And making a plan for the next steps. Well, he tells her that he'll help her get a lawyer and she tells him that he has to do more than that, that he has to get put on the case so that he won't try to get her convicted like the other district attorney would. Right. So not only does he have to help find her representation, but he is also expected to get himself assigned to the case by whatever means necessary. So... Thelma is arrested and escorted out. She's taken to prison and thus begins the trial or the jury selection leading up to the trial. Cleve makes good on his promise. He sends an anonymous note to the lawyer that he has hired. Again, through an anonymous thing, he just sent him some money and said, I want you to represent Thelma Jordan. And he sent him a note saying, the way to get rid of the district attorney is to hire his brother to be on your legal team because... I guess siblings can't work. That's a conflict of interest. Right. D- the DA is immediately removed. Cleve is put on the case. So he will be the prosecutor for Thelma's trial. Then we go through the whole trial. It's kind of cool because her lawyer's kind of in on it. He he suspects there's something going on because Cleve is just doing too many things that are openly hurting his case. Like there's one lady who... Um, I guess is very religious and he's like religious or not you will convict this woman and we you will sentence her to death 
And you can just see the look of defiance on the woman's face and how much she hates him. And Thelma's lawyer is just kind of narrating this the whole time to her. And it's and he's narrating it for the audience as well, like where Cleve is making the mistake. He's going in too hard. You know, that's not going to work with certain people. Or he's letting certain things go and he's focusing on these other things. But they're all things that could kind of be played off as a rookie mistake because I don't think he's ever tried a case with this much publicity before. Yeah, it, he's definitely smart in the way that he approaches this. All the mistakes he makes are under, understandable, like you said, kind of newer, newbie mistakes. So it can be written off as such. But it's very calculated on his part. He's doing it strategically in order to paint Thelma in this light or to paint the jury against him instead of Thelma. And let's take a minute to talk about the costumes. Yeah, I think this is a great point to like take a little break because we're coming up to the conclusion of the movie. So Edith Head did costumes for this. And if you aren't familiar with Edith Head, she is the costume designer to end all costume designers. She has over 400 film credits and has done everything from the file on Thelma Jordan to... The heiress, the sting. She won eight Academy Awards for Best Costume Design. This is a highly decorated costume designer. And I was so surprised when you told me that this was who designed the costumes for Thelma Jordan. But if you look at the costumes, they're very understated for the film. But there's something really interesting in the beginning of the film. We talking about that dress that we first see Thelma in. It's very glamorous. It definitely plays into her the backstory of her being a lounge hostess or something in a club because it does kind of represent that but then throughout the film you see her in much more understated modest conservative clothing and it isn't until the end of the film that you see that kind of lounge club persona come back out there is one piece though that she has throughout the film and it's this scarf that has sequins all over it. Yeah, exactly. Because we talked about that one scene where her face is in shadow. It almost seems like it's two different people. There's two different sides to Thelma Jordan. There's this lounge club persona. And then there's the Thelma Jordan that Cleve, saw, Cleve falls in love with. But again, that scarf kind of ties it all back. Because she can never fully escape her past. And I can't. I would be remiss to think that this wasn't done on purpose. Oh, I'm sure that it was done on purpose. And did you know that Edith Head was not an artist? Really? No, she took some art classes because she was a teacher and she wanted to make more money. So she said, oh, I can teach art. She never set out to be an artist or a designer. Right. She received a bachelor's of arts degree in letters and sciences and a master's of arts in romance languages from Stanford mm. University. Wow. I think she was an artist. Oh, yeah, she was, but... She never set out to be one. Right. Got it. Wow. Well, that just goes to show you where you think you're starting and where you think you're going to end, maybe two different places. Edna Mode in The Incredibles is based off of her. I love Edna Mode. She died in 1981, and the last movie that she worked on came out in 1982. Wow. So she worked basically up until she died. When she was 70, she left Paramount Pictures to join Universal Pictures. Wow. And how old was she when she passed away? So she was 83 when she passed away. And she actually passed away four days before her 84th birthday. And she's a Scorpio. So I don't know what that says. But I felt like I needed to say that. She also played herself in a episode of Columbo. Wow. 
and all of her Oscars were on her desk in the scene. Oh, but she said her greatest accomplishment was when she was asked to design a woman's uniform for the United States Coast Guard. Her designs knew no bounds. So it was for film, for our military. Wow. Yeah, she also designed for TV. She also designed for All About Eve and Sabrina. Agnes Moorhead's clothes in Bewitched. She received the Meritus Public Service Award for designing the Coast Guard uniform. Yeah, if you haven't ever learned about Edith Head, I highly suggest looking her up and checking out the pictures because she really does look like a version of Edna Mode. They did a great job. But what a character. She would wear these blue tinted glasses Uh because it would give the right color for black and white film that she could look at the colors and see what they would look like on screen. Mm. Yeah, and she worked with Alfred Hitchcock, Audrey Hepburn, Betty Davis... Barbara Stanwyck. So this really was the woman who made Hollywood look beautiful. Yeah, she worked with pretty much every big name actress. There's a... Oh, I like this one. You can lead a horse to water and you can even make it drink, but you can't make an actress wear what they don't want to wear. Oh, yeah. Oh, she said, I don't usually get into battles, but dressing Kim Novak for her role in Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo put to to the test all my training in psychology. (laughs) For some reason, I think that is a she is a formidable woman, and I have no doubt she would get her way. Oh, I also liked this one. I never thought I did good work for Cecil B. DeMille. I always had to do what that old conceited goat wanted, whether it was correct or not. Wow. Oh, and here, this ties back. This was about Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, the last movie that she designed. And she said, I guess I've come full circle when I designed the exact dress for Steve Martin that I did for Barbara Stanwyck. <laughs> Which, if you haven't seen that, that's a fun movie. Uh, She said that one of her favorite actors to dress was Grace Kelly. She's quoted to say, I've dressed thousands of actors, actresses, and animals, but whenever I am asked which star is my personal favorite, I answer Grace Kelly. She is a charming lady, a most gifted actress, and to me, a valued friend. And then I'll just leave you with this last Edith Head quote. I have yet to see one completely unspoiled star except Lassie. (laughs) I was just reading that. She sounds like an amazing woman. We should definitely link to some biographies for her in the show notes. Yeah. And anytime I see that she's listed as the costume designer, I'm like, you know they're going to be good. Even even if they're not the like huge, big costumes. They that, will be well done. Yes. It's going to fit in with the movie. No, Edith Head is one of the all-time great costume designers costume designers she's inspired generation after generation of costumers and we probably probably unknowingly use many of her methods to this day in film and theater probably in day-to-day too yeah because she was a tastemaker because what was seen on film was what was then made for the masses so going back to Thelma Jordan we revisit them at the end of the trial because during the trial she's wearing this very simple long sleeve dress with like is that like a Peter Pan collar on yeah, it? Yeah, it was very demure. Cleve comes to see her right before the last day of the trial. They think he's come to offer like a plea bargain or something. Um, oh yeah, the the matron, the the warden. The matron. Oh yeah, she would have been the prison matron. She makes a comment about, oh, you're going to try to crack this one? Good luck. Or says something to that effect. And so he's come to talk to her about 
her being on the stand because she's supposed to take the stand the next day and she's really worried about it and they get into this fight and she says stop it Cleve and he tells her well you can't tell me to stop it when you're on the stand so they don't really come to a resolution he leaves we get to the trial the next day and she has decided that she is not going to testify no and the whole courtroom is a buzz and you see his face and it's just, it's a big, it's a big, big stink. And he says, I need to argue for my right to cross-examine. And they're like, but you don't have any right to cross-examine. That's not a thing. Mm-hmm. And so they just, like, launch right into closing arguments. Yeah. To which her lawyer does a very good job closing his case out. And they say, why has she been silent so long? Who knows what's in a woman's heart? So dramatic. And so it finally comes time. The verdict. And the prison's across the street, and she's not handcuffed. They have no protection for her or anything. They just, like, lead her across the street. There's this huge crowd of people. They go in. They read the verdict. She's not guilty. Not guilty. Someone else killed Aunt Vera, and all fingers point to Mr. X, who has been named quite a few times throughout the trial, but no one still knows who he is. But I have a sneaking suspicion that Thelma's lawyer knows it's Cleve because they have some interactions and exchanges that he just gives some very knowing looks and says some things and just leads you to believe this man knows more than he's letting on. Yeah, I think he also knows that Cleve threw the trial. Yeah. No, because he was he was watching and kind of giving a play-by-play to Thelma. And I think he knew that Cleve was probably smarter than that. So she's free now. She she's goes free. home. And this is when we start seeing the old Thelma, that original Thelma, that very glamorous woman she's in this amazing house coat that robe i don't think you can call that a house coat that is a robe yeah and just it's shoulder padded to perfection so she's got this very structured shoulder area and her it tapers down to her tiny little waist and it's got these long beautiful sleeves and it just swishes so beautifully oh my gosh the skirt just flows i want it i don't know what that material was i don't know if it was silk or if it was just the way it was sewn but that was the most extraordinary robe i've ever seen it just moved yeah and she's packing and tony's there yes and one of the things that we found out was that Aunt Vera left all her money to Thelma. Thelma said she didn't know about this. Mm -hmm. Do you think that she did? I wonder because I don't think she originally intended to go and get the inheritance. I think it was about getting, getting the emeralds. So Tony has said that he was just wanting the emeralds, but now that he has basically someone to take care of him for the rest of his life... He's going to stick around. Yeah, and she just tells him that she wants to basically get away from him, that she'll sign the money over to him, and he's like, no, 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 that's going to be too suspicious. Might look like I was in on it. So, yeah, so she's clearly not happy about where she's ended up. Even though she's free, she is just chained to Tony. And then Cleve calls... And so he's calling basically to see how she is. Can he come over? And when he's talking to her, Tony's like, answer the phone. And what does he say? He says something. It's so smarmy and kind of 
Weasley. Didn't write it down. I don't remember what he says. But basically, they're having this exchange, and the whole time that Cleve is on the phone, Tony's kissing, like forcefully kissing Thelma, just to like prove his dominance over her. Yeah. Well, he tells her, I end up with a lifelong annuity. Do you think I'm going to let that get away? I only wanted the emeralds. Is that what you were talking about or something else? No, he was making, he made some comments about Cleve. It was like, let's see how much this guy actually loves you or let's. Oh, yeah. Or something. He was making some kind of digs at Cleve, which is like, that's fine. He's not like the greatest guy. He's basically tampered with and thrown a case for a woman. Yeah. Who, in the end, we find out when Cleve comes over and discovers Thelma with Tony that she indeed did kill Aunt Vera. But yeah. she says she didn't mean to. That she was in, she was trying to open the safe and Aunt Vera came upon her and scared her and she shot her. But she also says that anytime you have a gun, you're you, mean to kill. Yeah. So Because he said something about like you, or something is said about her not meaning to kill Aunt Vera. But then she goes, but anytime you have a gun, you do mean to kill. But when you have a gun, you always intend to if you have to. Yeah. Is what she said. So she did. She basically used Cleve to get off scot-free. Yeah. But she also tells him that it wasn't supposed to be him. It was was supposed to be Scott. Yeah. So he was just kind of at the wrong place at the wrong time. But uh, then again, if you go back and watch that first scene, you see her readjusting. Yeah. To me, I could see where that was happening because you can just kind of hear it in her dialogue because it just changes slightly. And then once she recalibrates, she's back in. So Tony knocks Cleve out. And they're making their getaway. Yeah. And in the car, he's saying, oh, let's go to Europe. What do you think about a boat trip? And And he's like, can't wait for you to change that mousy hair and dye it back. Yeah, get the right clothes. Basically just starting to control her once again. Yeah. Change back everything who you are to something else. To the Back to Tony's Thelma. Yeah. So she's just kind of sitting there, and she gets a cigarette out, and he pulls the lighter the car lighter out and hands it to her and you just see her have a moment of something and then she jams it into his forehead car runs off the road and it's a very graphic crash crash scene it's a very pointed moment when you see her make that decision because she knows she's just going from being controlled in one way to being back to the other woman that she was being controlled by a man that doesn't love her and just wants her for her money so she makes the choice to end it. And she runs that car off the road. It's a fiery crash. Tony's killed. She's thrown from the car. And the next scene that we see is Cleve coming to the hospital. And Thelma is bandaged up quite a lot. Um, we find out through the nurse and through Scott that she isn't going to make it. And she confesses to everything. Aunt Vera's murder and basically Tony's murder. Oh, yeah. She cops to it all. And she has a really beautiful last line. Did you write it down? Yeah. She said, they told me that I was two people. Do you suppose they just let half of me die? She didn't want to die. And she also tells him that she didn't tell who Mr. X was because she loves him. Yeah. So in the end, she did actually love Cleve because she does tell him that she didn't. It was all an act. But then in the end, she does confess her true feelings. And she dies paying for her crimes. But do you know who isn't paying for his crimes? Cleve. Because he confessed to everything. 
he went and he told him. So he's he's going to be disbarred. He can't practice law anymore. But I would think that he would go to jail. He should be arrested. Like, he, he perverted the course of justice, which I don't know if that's, like, an actual thing, but I would think that throwing a trial, you would go to jail. That, that, that feels like criminal charges. Plus, he was an accomplice to a murder. Yeah. He helped cover it up. An accomplice after the fact, but still. No, it didn't matter, because he helped cover it up, so right. he was an accomplice. You still go to jail for that. You still go to jail. But the point is, is all that was happening to him was him getting disbarred right and they figured out that he was mr x because of her sparkly scarf the private detective saw that he was with a woman with that sparkly scarf and she also had it on her when she died so both thelmas the thelma of the past the thelma that cleave came to love are both gone yeah scott also tells him that his wife will get over it and come back to him Cleve doesn't really pay for anything. No. Which is odd for a noir because normally both people die. Normally if it's two people doing something really wrong, both of them die. Yeah, he got off pretty easy. Yeah. So I just wanted to take a minute to kind of read some snippets from some reviews that this movie got. So Variety Magazine said, Thelma Jordan unfolds as an interesting femme-slanted melodrama told with a lot of restrained excitement. Scripting from a story by Marty Holland, it is forthright up to the contrived conclusion and even that is carried off successfully because of the sympathy developed for the misguided and misused character played by Wendell Corey. Oh my gosh, I was going to say the misguided and misused character that was done by Barbara Stanwyck. Um, They also praised the director for many scenes of extreme tension. Well, great. Wow, that really goes to show you where everyone was at during that time. He was the misused, misguided character. Yeah. And she wasn't. She was She was evil. She was bad. I mean, she did manipulate him, but he willingly participated in everything. Yeah, but she. W- it was because, well, yeah, he willingly participated and got off pretty, pretty easy, in my opinion. And she was just trying to make a better life for herself. She was trying to get out of that place of want which and that to me is very misguided and she was misused by men and we don't know her backstory but it's really kind of interesting looking at the character of Thelma Jordan and then looking at Barbara Stanwyck because there are so many parallels because Barbara Stanwyck we don't know about Thelma's past but we do know that it was kind of a harder rough past Um, and Barbara Stanwyck was orphaned her mother died when she was four her father abandoned her and her sisters and so she was raised by her sisters and in foster homes that she would frequently run away from until her her sister i believe was her oldest sister came and like legally became her guardian and she grew up kind of in burlesque shows worked in a lot of like kind of underground nightclubs allegedly taught ballroom dancing at a gay nightclub so thought that was kind of interesting but there were these two sides there because there was that side and then there was the barbara sandwich that everyone knew and worked with because no one had anything bad to say about her. There was never an unkind word against Barbara Stanwyck. Everyone enjoyed working with her, and she never had an unkind word to say to anybody else. Anybody else. But I often wonder what was the other side of her. So I, I thought it was interesting, the character of Thelma Jordan and Barbara Stanwyck. 
being so finding so many comparisons. So the New York Times said about this movie, Thelma Jordan is, for all its production polish, adult dialogue, and intelligent acting, a strangely halting and sometimes confusing work. I get that. Because to me, like this wasn't one of my favorite movies. I enjoyed it, but I think I enjoyed it because of Barbara Stanwyck. And again, what, what, what was the wording about the performances? Intelligent acting. I, that is so on the money, money because she is such a brilliant actor. And again, just grabs you from start to finish when she's on a screen. Yeah, to me, the story was a little bit confusing and a little, um, what's the word, convoluted? Mm. I don't know. It felt simple and complicated at the same time. Well, it's one of those weird things. Usually, if you're going to get a trial movie, whatever happens, happens pretty early, and then the movie is about the trial, or you get what happens, and then the trial is really fast. This had, like, a long setup, but also we see a lot of the trial, so it was almost kind of like two different movies put together like they couldn't decide which one they wanted to do well also we talk about the tonality because there were those scenes that read very comedic or read like a love scene or like a romance love story kind of thing so I don't think it quite knew what it wanted to be but yeah the the it is funny when you think about how long the setup was and then it did feel like the trial while that was kind of a smaller portion of the movie it did feel like it kind of it lagged on so that's kind of interesting. I'm not quite sure what would have fixed that there, but I think either a shorter setup or a shorter trial probably, or a shorter conclusion would have made that. Because it did. It felt very, it was like long, 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 dragged out trial, and then it was like conclusion. Oh, everyone's dead. Yeah. But that's kind of par for noir. Like it ends pretty abruptly or quickly. Yeah. Endings are kind of like that. But, but yeah, the, the pacing was weird in this. So I wonder what would have made if, if editing, different editing would have made that feel a little bit clearer. So what rating would you give this? This rating, well, I'm not going to lie. It, it, it wasn't my favorite. I, it's not my favorite noir I've seen. Um, the thing for me that makes this stand out is Barbara Stanwyck. She is just phenomenal. I'll never trust her in a movie because you just can't. I thought she was fabulous, and I thought she was kind of the driving force and the glue that was holding everything together. I thought she did a really great job of doing that. Going beyond that, I did enjoy the performances. The movie itself dragged a little bit for me, so I think I would give this one probably a B minus. I get and I, and and the B is mostly for Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah, I feel like it's a solid B. I did enjoy Wendell Corey's performance, though, too. But I really wish he had been in a different movie where he had gotten to flex that comedy muscle a little bit. Because he didn't feel like a noir leading man. He didn't have that feel to me. And I'm not saying there has like they have to fill that role. But it did feel like he wanted to be in another movie, just the, his performance. I also think that was one of the things that made this stand out a little bit Mm -hmm. no for sure because it did kind of give it a lighthearted feel in the beginning very misguidedly so but yeah it did kind of feel more kind of fun yeah so yeah it was a fun little movie i enjoyed the performances um but ultimately it it did lag a little bit for me and i'm pretty sure this does not pass the bechdel test no because i think there's only three or four five women max that have speaking roles but I think they're all having to do with. I don't think they even talk please. to each other. No, I don't. 
I mean, Thelma talks to Aunt Vera, and they t- she's reading her the article. Yeah. And that doesn't have anything to do with a dude. So. I guess so. But that's, but again, we've talked about how kind of unnecessary and unuseful the Bechdel test yeah. is. But um, technically, I guess it does have one bit of dialogue where it's two female characters that have names that are not talking about another dude because they're talking about, about fruit baskets and gay Mexican baskets. Yeah. Because I just heard that and I was like, what's that? But <laughs> yeah, I forgot. Like I was listening to that with my 2019 ears and I wasn't listening to that with my 1950 ears. So I was just like, what is that? RuPaul? You keep some ears from 1950 around? I just, I have to put my filters on. Oh, okay. My filters weren't on when I heard gay Mexican baskets. Anything else that you have to say about this one? I'm ready to do recommendations if you are. You have a recommendation? I do. I made it up. No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I kid. No, I came up with it because I was thinking about this earlier and I looked it up while we were recording just now. So, but I want you, why don't you go first? Because you normally have like 20. No, it's okay. You go ahead. I want to hear what yours is. Okay. Well, I do really want to encourage you all to do your research on Barbara Stanwyck. Look up uh, a biography or two. Read up about her. She definitely had some problematic things in her past. She was like a diehard Republican, kind of supported McCarthyism, which kind of sucks. But as far as I know, I might be incorrect about that. So please correct me if I'm wrong. But that's what I read. Um, and I also suggest looking up Edith Head. And also Gertrude Hoffman. I don't think there's probably a biography written about her, but just go to IMDb and just look at her credits. It's The list is so extensive. And just be completely shocked at how many of these are uncredited roles. But as far as film goes, I wanted to suggest one of the films I saw at the Film Noir Fest in San Francisco in January. And this is called Pushover. And this stars Kim Novak and Fred McMurray, who's kind of like the king of noir. He's always, he's in so many noirs. But I really love this for Kim Novak. And she was 19 when she filmed this. And Fred McMurray was not. He was a lot older. I want to say he was in his 40s. But um, this film is about an undercover cop who falls for a beautiful mole of a bank robber on the run, and together they double-cross the hood and the cops. So very, very dark and seedy with lots of ulterior motives. So it's a very fun watch. Um, I have suggestions if someone ever wants to do a remake on how we could change the ending to be a little bit more female-centric um, and give Kim the Kim Novak character... Um, Lana McLean a little bit of a ride off into the sunset but this was directed by Richard Quinn or Quine and it was written by Roy Hudgens and it's based on two novels one is called Night Watch and one is called Rafferty and Night Watch was written by Thomas Walsh and Rafferty was written by Bill S. Ballinger so those are my recommendations look up Barbara Stanwyck, Edith Head and Pushover starring Kim Novak well my recommendation isn't a far jump it is another Barbara Stanwyck movie. <gasps> Shocker. Uh, I am going to recommend Sorry, Wrong Number. Ooh, that sounds suspenseful. It is, there's a name here that you will recognize, Lucille Fletcher. Hey, I know that name. Uh, Nightwatch, right? Way back from our very first episode, um, she wrote the book Nightwatch that the movie Nightwatch was based on. That's so weird because the movie I just recommended 
was based on a novel called Night Watch. Yeah, I saw that. That was interesting. Synchronicities abound. So, yeah, the screenplay was by Lucille Fletcher based on her radio play. Uh, this stars Barbara Stanwyck and Burt Lancaster. Oh, cool. And the synopsis is, while on the telephone, an invalid woman overhears what she thinks is a murder plot and attempts to prevent it. Oh, cool. And Barbara Stanwyck probably overhears. Yes, she's the, <gasps> she's the invalid. Oh, my gosh. I don't trust her already. But I look forward to not trusting her. That is one I would really like to watch that very soon. Maybe we can cover that next year. Guess what? I have it. <gasps> I want to watch it. Anything else? I think that's all. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and kind of going on this journey of The File on Thelma Jordan with us. Please um, interact with us on Facebook and Twitter, Instagram. Let us know what you think of the film. Um, anything that we missed. Anything that you found that maybe we didn't we'd love to hear from you yeah this wraps up November for us oh my gosh it has come and gone I can't wait for next November. I already have some ideas well I think next year we were going to do nonfiction November <gasps> that's right and talk about some real ladies of crime maybe some nonfiction noir no I don't even know what that would be <laughs> But yeah, we just, one thing we want to ask you guys is would you please go to iTunes and leave us a review? Yes, leave us a rating and definitely add that review. It really makes a difference. And so far, we only have one really bitter Betty that let us left us a review. And I, we totally respect that opinion. And we're glad that they know what they like and what they don't like. But we would really love to hear if you are enjoying the podcast. And um, yeah, that would just help us out a lot. So we would really appreciate that. And we've also been on our Twitter giving a shout out to some other podcasters who inspire us and have been very supportive of us. Mm -hmm. So um, go there. Check it out. Follow them on Twitter. Listen to the podcast. They're all incredible. And um, yeah, just kind of deepen your knowledge of the world because they're based on all sorts of things. We have a couple of film. There's uh, history in there. There's things about women. Definitely go check it out. Yeah. All right. Say bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this episode of Fatal Femmes. Like us on Facebook at Fatal Femmes and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Fatal underscore Femmes. Have a question or comment for the show? Shoot us an email at fatalfemspodcast at gmail.com. Episodes are now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever podcatcher you use. Don't forget to leave us a rating while you're there. If you like what you've heard, check out our Patreon page. We have different sponsorship levels with perks that will allow us to make more content and better quality episodes. We hope you enjoyed this episode, because if you didn't, the consequences could be fatal. Thanks for listening.